to Sunday service at Ananda Village. My name is Latika, and I'm happy to be here sharing Sunday service with Naya Swami Nitai and all of you. Uh, I'd first like to welcome all of our guests and visitors and those who are joining us on the internet. I hope that this service will give you inspiration and upliftment to carry with you throughout the week. I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light, Commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. This chapter is entitled, First Things First. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it, 
in your inner deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. That expression, first things first, is a piece of counsel often given to students of business techniques. It is the advice of practicality to those who aspire to worldly success. But according to hermetic doctrine, as above, so below, that which works best in one level of life is often the best guide to what will work best on every other level. If a person is true to his highest priorities, he will generally find that his other needs are fulfilled naturally as well. This is true certainly of the search for God. One of the greatest sayings of Jesus Christ was this simple sentence in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Paramahansa Yogananda gave his elder brother Ananta a wonderful lesson in this truth. It was Ananta who had captured him and brought him back from his flight to the Himalayas, described by Yogananda in Autobiography of a Yogi. In Yogananda's book, we read how Ananta later challenged him in the city of Agra to pit his divine faith against such practical worldly considerations as the need for earning a living. Fearless before that challenge, the young aspirant agreed to go by train without any money to the nearby town of Brindaban, not to miss a single meal in Brindaban, and to find his way back to Agra without begging and without in any other way asking for help. In one of the most thrilling chapters in the book, Yogananda fulfilled all the conditions of the test. Yogananda continued the account. As the tale was unfolded, my brother turned sober, then solemn. The law of demand and supply reaches into subtler realms than I had supposed. Ananta spoke with a spiritual enthusiasm never before noticeable. I understand for the first time your indifference to the vaults and vulgar accumulations of the world. Late as it was, my brother insisted that he receive diksha, initiation, into Kriya Yoga. As the Bhagavad Gita puts it in the ninth chapter, Those who worship lesser gods go to their gods, but those who worship me come to me. Thus through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. I'd like to start this morning with a reading from Whispers. <clears throat> and uh, you have to know one word. You have to know what a denizen is. So people might remember this reading before. But a denizen is a really big fish, <laughs> bigger than you can imagine. <clears throat> Teach me to fish for thee in the deep waters of my soul. I sought to catch thee in the deep waters of superconsciousness. Little fishes of inspiration nibbled at my bait of meditation. My concentration bobbed, but every time I pulled, I, pulled, I missed thee. I baited the hook of my meditation with the tasty spice of love. The little fishes tugged, and I watched them do so with attentive zeal. Lo, 
My mind's float vanished beneath thy waves of bliss. O colossal denizen of my consciousness, I pulled at thee, and with a bound thou didst leap to the shores of my heart. Teach me to fish for thee ever in the deepest waters of my soul. So this morning, <clears throat> we, get to, um, we get to work with a story. <laughs> That's probably one of the funnest ways to do a Sunday service, is a good story. And this story this morning of the penniless boys in Brindabon has got to be one of the best stories in the whole history of mankind. <clears throat> you know, as I, my, my day job is a teacher, school teacher, <clears throat> and so you're and especially in an education for life school like we have here, we're always trying to look for ways to inspire the children. And so sometimes you tell stories, or if you get really, uh, if you get really uh, creative, you might create a little activity to do that might get to try to get a point across. And they all have a certain power to them. But when something happens in real life, when it just it catches that element that you're looking for right there, that's when they get it. That's when the children get it because it's like it's. It's true to life. Um, Jesus, of course, when he taught, used many parables to try to get uh, this, the truths of cross, and as did Master. Um, but this story of the, the Brindabon story is so powerful because it just happened in regular life. Um, Yogananda was about uh, 17 or 18 years old. He was still young. Um, but you also actually can see in this story the... Swami talks about this, how Master, when he, he wasn't exactly self-deprecating is not the right word, but he, he never emphasized his own consciousness in writing Autobiography of a Yogi. But if you look carefully, there are hints all the way through, and especially in this story, there are hints that he was not a normal 17 or 18-year-old, <laughs> that uh, he was not even a normal devotee. Uh, he was a powerful, powerful soul, and it just comes out kind of spontaneously in this story because it's so... Um, just right out of uh, his life. He's um, graduated from high school, and um, he has this little interlude, a short interlude bef between graduating from high school at home and then going into Sri Yukteswar's hermitage. And during this interlude, this little incident comes up. He uh, is with his friend Jitendra, and they are deciding to visit the Taj Mahal. And, um, Yogananda's brother Ananta happens to live in the same city in Agra at that time. Uh, he has a very responsible job. Uh, Ananta does. He's a, he, he must not be that old. He must be like 27, 28 at the most. But he's a uh, kind of like a, a manager in the in the big railroad railroad in that area. Um, so he has he's doing really well financially. <clears throat> he has an, a, probably a nice house in Agra. And here comes Yogananda. He had left one ashram that he'd been visiting for a while, and he's getting ready to go to another ashram. And this brother, who's like all big brothers, he's trying to give his little brother advice. But um, the wording in here is, I want to read it, because it <laughs> it's great. It's, also, this story is so powerful, because it hits at the, one of the main challenges that we have as devotees on the path. You know, are we going to trust in the material world, or are we going to look deeper? Um, are we going to take what we get through the senses as our basis for making decisions in life? Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because sense, yes. <laughs> because that's the information that uh, we're trained to look at. But 
the whole spiritual path all through the ages say there's a deeper truth to life. There's something beneath the senses, beyond the senses that we can cultivate and we can learn to work with. Anyway, Ananta doesn't have this yet. He's still a person of the senses. He says, it would serve you right if father disinherited you, Makunda. Makunda is Yogananda's boyhood name and he lived in, his father was wealthy. How foolishly you are throwing away your life. And then Yogananda's answer, you well know, Ananta, I seek my inheritance from the heavenly father. Ananta, money first. God can come later. Who knows? Life may be too long. <clears throat> Anybody ever? <laughs> if you're of a certain age and you're starting to think of Social Security, you just have to, <laughs> you have to decide when you're going to take your, uh, your Social Security. And if you take it too soon, you get a little bit. But if you wait, you might run out anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> Yogananda's answer. <clears throat> God first. Money is his slave. Who can tell? Life may be too short. <clears throat> and so then Ananta goes through this little thinking process and he comes up with an idea. And he says to his brother, he says, um, the next morning, so you feel quite independent of father's wealth. And Yogananda answers, I am conscious of my dependence on God. Words are cheap. Life has shielded you thus far. What a plight if you were forced to look to the invisible hand for your food and shelter. You would be soon begging on the streets. Never. I would not put faith in passersby rather than God. He can devise for his devotee a thousand resources beside the begging bowl. More rhetoric. Suppose I suggest that your vaunted philosophy be put to a test in this tangible world. I would agree. Do you confine God to a speculative world? So they go on, they go on to this amazing adventure that probably 99% of the people in this room know, <laughs> but it's such a good story. It's not, it's fun to go through it again. Um, they're sent off, his brother sends them off. He gives them two train passes, the Yogananda and his friend Jitendra, and to go to the nearby town, um, Vrindavan, uh, to spend the day and uh, with the I, with the thought that he can't take any money with him at all, nothing, not a, not a penny. And he also says, if your God's so strong, I want you to be able to go, get off the train, the tickets will take you there, and I would like to see that you eat during the day, you have good meals, that you don't beg, you don't tell anybody what the challenge is, keep it a secret, and also that you uh, get to see the sights of Vrindavan and uh, and also return back to Agra by midnight. And of course, to return, you need a return ticket, and they don't have one. <laughs> so um, so the Yogananda is, of course, no problem. Now, the, the great part of this story is that he didn't, he didn't initiate it. You know, sometimes it's a trap on the spiritual path. People get a little bit, and they, you kind of want to show you, you've got a certain level of realization you got, or powers, whatever. And of course, that always is a trap. <laughs> but here, uh, he has nothing to do with initiate. He just responds to an honest challenge. His brother is making fun of his way of life. And as anybody would, you would want to stand up for what you believe in. You don't want to apologize for, uh, for your higher ideals. So he, he just, all he does is respond. He says, well, okay, sure. I know my, my, this other way will work better. So they get, go on the train. And um, the, uh, immediately his friend starts to get uh, kind of queasy. He's, he's a good, he's a, unfortunately, he's a good model for where we are a lot of the times. 
as soon as we get out there and we get a little, oh, I wonder if I know what happened last time. I don't know if it's going to happen this time. And we start to worry and get concerned, and the game goes on. So um, he gets on there, and um, he just starts to complain. And Yogananda says, says, kind of scolds him for lack of faith. And so then the, um, but just after this whole exchange, the, the door to their compartment opens, and these two men walk in. And this is the kind of the conversation. The, first, the man walks towards us. Young lads, do you have friends in Brindaban? The stranger opposite me was taking a surprising interest. Now, if you put yourself in this situation, you've just been given this big challenge to do this, and somebody shows a little interest in you, what do you think your response would be? Kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, and just kind of, kind of nurture it along, kind of flow. Yogananda's response is, none of your business. <laughs> 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 and I think this is, this is where he shows his, his, his power, that he just knows that God's going to come by. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to kind of uh, wet the, whatever it is, just to smooth this thing. He can just count on God, that God's going to get through any, somehow, and he doesn't have to be uh, uh, trying to make it happen on his own. Rudely, I averted my gaze. <laughs> <laughs> so the passenger, instead of being put off by it, he talks to him a little bit and kind of has this other conversation. Then Yogananda says, uh, no, sir, let us alone. <laughs> so twice he's kind of pushed this whole help away. <clears throat> but then he kind of softly says, you're very kind, but you're mis mistaken in judging us to be truants from home. So he tries to push it away, and there's no, uh, no agreement that they're going to do anything. So the train gets to Brindavan, the door opens, and the man, without saying anything else, just grabs his arm <laughs> and starts walking him out the door. And it's just like, you know, it was like he would have had to throw him aside and just keep him from helping him at that point. But, he, you know, he, he cooperates and he goes along. Then they go, the man gets a carriage and they take him to this, you all, most of you know the story, he takes him to this incredible um, an ashram where they're having this banquet and uh, the, the guests they were expecting didn't arrive. And then, so the two boys come in and they're treated like princes. They're treated like royalty the whole afternoon. And they can't say anything. Now there's one... <laughs> There was one, uh, let's see if I can find that. <clears throat> oh, oh, yeah, here she is. So the lady who's sponsoring it, and she's there, she comes out and she starts fanning them with a, with a punka. <laughs> and Yogananda's friend starts crying right then because he's kind of so upset that, you know, oh, I redoubted. And, and Yogananda's comment, I love this, being a high school teacher. Um, <laughs> our hostess looked at him with curiosity without remark. Perhaps she was familiar with adolescent quirks. <laughs> so, um, so they finish, they finish the meal, the banquet. They can't tell the lady anything about it. She invites them to come back anytime they're in the area, and they go off. And then they get outside, and this broiling Indian sun is on them. And so they go across the street right away to get in the shade. And then the friend starts in on Yogananda again. Okay, that was blind luck. <laughs> that, that was just, you know, why? How, that couldn't happen. You can't count on that. And Yogananda says, come on. <laughs> in some words, and just kind of, let's just try and see. At that moment, this young man is walking down the street toward them. And he comes right up to where they're sitting. And he says, let's see, what does he say here? He says, a slight young man, a pleasing countenance, approached at rapid pace. Halting under our tree, he bowed before me. Dear friend, you and your companion must be strangers here. Permit me to be your host and guide. <laughs> 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 
It's, if it's scarcely possible for an Indian to pale, but my friend's face was suddenly sickly. <laughs> I politely declined the offer. So again, he, put, he doesn't say, oh, God, you did it. Thanks. Yeah, I write Jai Guru. You know, it was <laughs> he declines the offer. He puts the test that little further. And, um, and the man says, you're surely not banishing me. <laughs> and they go through this whole thing where it turns out this man's had a vision of Yogananda and um, he goes through and he wants to, uh, to ask him to his home and Yogananda says, well, we really can't do that because uh, we have to be back at my brother's house in Agra. And the man says, well, at least let me show you around the city. So, of course, they agree and he takes him around the city, takes him to the train station, buys him the return tickets and gives him a lot of sweetmeats and a bunch of money to take with him <laughs> and, and goes back and then that's the story ends with the, what was in the reading today. So, it's a powerful, powerful story that um, all of us, all of us have to, to, go, to work with uh, later on, he does say, he just gives this, he said, how could I trust so easily? And he says, well, I just look back in my life. He's only 17 years old, and he has this whole string of things where he's seen God take care of him. And if you know the other stories in the first part of the book, he, God heals him, God brings him. He's the kite story where he wins the kites by these strange winds coming up, and it's on and on and on. And so, of course, with that kind of experience in your life, um, you develop a certain confidence that God is going to come to you. But it's something we have to each build because we can't, it doesn't work to depend on other people's, um, other people's experiences. We have to cultivate our own experiences. Um, you look at, you know, of course, we've all seen Swami doing things at Ananda over the years that demonstrate that same courage, that same faith. Um, just, you know, little things I remember the, when, we, this, when the community burned down, um, Instead of getting sad and upset, Swami uh, decided we would go on a joy tour around the country and um, you know, just share people the joy of what Ananda was all about. There wasn't, <laughs> a, lot, there wasn't a lot here to show that there was you know, on the physical plane, but that didn't bother Swami. At all. Um, <clears throat> I remember the time that uh, Swami decided it was time to expand the work, and uh, we were down in San Francisco giving these, uh, these pre presentations on superconscious living, I think it was, and uh, toward the end of it, Swami decided, well, it'd be really nice to have us an ashram in San Francisco. And so he you know, signed the lease on this 50-room uh, mansion in Pacific Heights, the most expensive part of San Francisco. <laughs> and it's hard, a little harder to get it from this day and age, 2011, because you know, we could kind of at least imagine that happening now. In uh, 1980 or whenever that happened, that was so far beyond Ananda's <laughs> level of livelihood. It was just almost impossible to imagine because we're all living in teepees and trailers and here all of a sudden we're getting a 40-room mansion in uh, Pacific Heights. Um, so we do have to work with it. And since I'm getting Sunday service, I get to tell you a couple of my favorite stories. Um, just, just a couple. One, one was um, uh, I had just gotten married and... Um, my house that was going to become my house w had been a chicken coop. <laughs> it, <coughs> and uh, it's now, uh, if you go behind the market, there's a little house there, Manzanita House. <coughs> and um, so I had, I sold my trailer with this affirmation that we're going to have a house for this family. Uh, the lady I was marrying had a son at that time, 13 year old son, so we needed a house. So I sold my trailer for $500 and I thought I would fix up the chicken coop. 
Well, in starting to fix up the chicken coop, it found the whole thing was rotten to the core. It was, a mi- it was a miracle it was still standing. It was just like sawdust in the walls instead of boards. <coughs> Nothing, no foundation. The, the gophers were, were poking their heads up through the rug sometimes. <coughs> and so you can't do a lot with $500, even back then. And I just, but I had to, I had to have a house, you know, we had to have something. So I kept borrowing or charging things at the uh, lumber yard in town. And the bill got up to $5,000. And, um, you know, I felt like we were doing the right thing. It was supposed to be something we were supposed to do, but we had, there was no money. And there was nobody to bar- borrow it from. Um, I was actually, I didn't even have a charge card. I was using um, my friend's charge card at the... <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> So, the due date came. There's a $5,000 bill that the uh, lumber company is expecting to be paid, and there's no money. And, um, but it was like, okay, there's got to be an answer. There's got to be an answer to this. So, um, my wife and I decided there's no money here at Ananda, so it's useless to stay here. <laughs> there's no way it's going to manifest here. Let's go where there's money. This, this is completely facetious reasoning, but <laughs> so there's, there's probably money in Sacramento. Let's go down to Sacramento for the day and just see if they can't find some of that money. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to a series of banks and probably made the day of several bank executives as we walked in and tried to convince them to loan us $5,000 because we had no, no, no uh, security, we had no credit history, we had nothing, nothing that speaks to bankers. And so, you know, it's getting kind of late in the day. It's about four o'clock, and we're kind of thinking, well, hmm, I don't know, we haven't found any money yet. So um, then this little thought popped in my mind that, um, oh, yeah, I'm a member of the credit union down here. Um, my mother made me join <laughs> when I was in college, and I think I had $25 in my account there. <laughs> but at least I'm a member. So these other banks had kept asking if we had accounts, and we didn't. So, we thought, okay, let's go to the credit union. So you go to the credit union, you walk in, and there's this big sign that says, Home Improvement Loans. <laughs> and we walk up to the lady, and we said, um, what are these home improvement loans about? And he says, well, you can get up to $5,000 if you're kind of improving your home. <laughs> and we said, that sounds pretty good. Uh, do you need collateral? And she said, well, it's a new federal program, and no, uh, it's a signature loan, and you just have to sign here. And uh, he says, you are improving your home? And, and I looked thought back at the chicken coop, and I thought, yeah, we're definitely <laughs> trying to improve the home loan. <laughs> So I didn't have to lie. <clears throat> and the guy writes out the $5,000 check and we come home. And there it is. <clears throat> so um, that was you know, one story. Another story was um, a little was funny. Um, I've told this story on Sunday service sometimes too. But we were up in Oregon uh, helping the center get started up there in the uh, late 80s. And we, part of getting the center started was to have a vegetarian restaurant. We called it the Song of the Rose. And we had a really hard time staffing it because, of course, there was no money. And uh, there was all kinds of miracles that happened getting that thing off the ground. But this particular one was humorous because we desperately needed another cook. We had to have a, a cook. And we just, everybody was getting run ragged trying to keep up with the menus and stuff like that. So one day, we closed at, uh, I think it was 9 o'clock at night, we closed the restaurant, locked the door, and the staff, we just sat down in the middle of the restaurant to pray. To, we were going to pray for a cook that we desperately needed. So we sat down. We haven't even started the prayer yet. And there's a knock at the door. <clears throat> and and the, look up, there's a lady standing over there. And so we said, sorry, we're busy. And, come <laughs> and uh, we sat and just turned away and we started praying. We were praying, you know, still going through the litany of the saints and everybody. <clears throat> 
And the lady at the door knocks again. I thought, what a, what a rude lady. <laughs> and, I, and so I got up and I went over there. No, I'm sorry, we're closed. We'll be open, you know, 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Come. And, and, you know, came back to the prayer circle. Let's pray again. We've got to pray harder. <laughs> and she knocks again on the door. <laughs> and I finally go over there. I open the door and I say, I'm sorry, we're closed. She says, I know you're closed. She says, but I'm a vegetarian cook and I really need a job. <laughs> and... I'll actually work for you for nothing if it's okay. <laughs> and so, you know, the restaurant continued for another, <laughs> for another while. <clears throat> but these, um, these, so these experiences that we have in our lives, they come if we're looking for them. They come if we'll also, we'll also pray for those answers and not always just depend on that uh, material security that's so tempting. It's so tempting, although it, it doesn't work. If you look really cl closely, it, it really doesn't work. It's, um, it, the laws are much deeper, as Yogananda was demonstrating that story. So we have to take that, those occasions um, that come up in our lives when we are tested. We are tested, especially when we're tested with the choice of I'm gonna, am I going to move ahead spiritually or am I going to support myself more? Am I going to get more material su support? And I think almost everybody that moved to Ananda has to go through that experience because usually it means some kind of financial sacrifice to move to a place like this. Um, and when you're in that situation, that's when you get the response because obviously Divine Mother wants us to keep deepening ourselves spiritually and that's what the, the, she's going to support. And when those things come up, those are the challenges. Those are the challenges. You look and you say, okay, oh, well look, yeah, I could, I could either hold back here and hang on to my security or I can move ahead and see what happens and spiritually. And now, if, if you're moving ahead for other reasons, that may not work so well. <laughs> but in this case, it's, it's a no-brainer that this is the challenge. And when you test yourself out, the first you can, you can't test yourself out on huge things to start with because you don't have the basis of faith to support it. You have to build it up gradually. But if you keep taking advantage of those opportunities and the opportunities will in inevitably come, because that's what Divine Mother is trying to, to teach us, how to depend on divine support rather than material support. So if we use those things, we will find that we have our own stack of stories. And if I was doing this as a class rather than a Sunday service, we would stop right now and have you turn to your neighbor and share stories, <laughs> because everybody in here has got good stories that, that are equally as funny as, as the ones I shared. Um, and that's also very, very empowering when you have a community, because you have a whole community full of stories. And at this point, you know, there are, I don't know, probably, I bet there's a million different stories about this, just from the Ananda experience of people coming here and testing out this principle. Do I put my faith in God or do I put my faith in matter? And that can help enormously to, to help us move ahead on this, on our spiritual path. We're trying to get to the point where we can trust God in all situations. But it's not only trust because there has to be something more to it than just a mental affirmation. And that's what's the incredible blessing of the time we're in now, where techniques are being brought in to help us to have a tangible experience of the divine in our lives, to help so that you know when you're making these choices, it's not just like you're kind of in a fog grasping. You learn you can feel there's a flow of consciousness that if you tap into and that you, if you stay connected with, you're guided. You're guided to the next step in everything that you do. And you develop your faith 
manifold many, many times uh, as, you, as you go that way. So if we take, do the homework, if we take each of these steps, if we practice it, we test out, test these things out, prove it to ourselves, and develop the inner awareness that goes with it, we have a surefire, foolproof guide to, cover, to take any challenge that can possibly come to us. It could be you know, all the challenges, the health challenges, the relationship challenges, the um, monetary challenges, all these things are just different versions of the same test. And we get the ones that we need, of course, because we have our own karma to work through and we have to stretch. But to cultivate that, that inner, inner presence is the difference between blind faith, which is, says, says, God's on my side, we're going to go this way and God will support me. Well, that's what a fanatic does. The fat, you know, if you go, any tradition has that, where people just kind of they get the teaching mentally and they charge off. But that's what Jesus said, the blind leading the blind. They're blind in the sense that they're spiritually blind. If they're spiritually blind because they don't have that inner sense developed yet, so they don't have any basis for their decisions. They're just charging out there. And of course, a lot of times disaster happens because that's the teaching there. That No, you don't quite have it yet. You have the outer teaching, you don't have the inner teaching. So whether you're the Taliban or the uh, Southern Baptist uh, dogmatist or whatever it is, um, you're, the, that's, you, you know, you want to, <laughs> there's always, a, we want to respect people like that because there is, a, there is a part of the way. They have part of the answer. They have this idea that they want to serve God, but they're lacking the inner part of it. They're lacking this part to really base it on something that they can experience. So our, our teachings give us all kinds of techniques uh, to build on that. All we have to do is commit ourselves to practicing them, to working with them. And I wanted to close today with a little, just a little exercise. Um, Swami kind of hints at it in the, the expanded reading on today's topic. But um, it's a little meditation exercise about learning to awaken the, the third eye, the spiritual eye. Um, it's wonderful to see things change. When I first started reading about these things, it's, the third eye seemed like it was some kind of fairy tale. <laughs> it was like um, nothing I ever heard of before. And of course, that was back in the 60s and 70s. And um, thanks to uh, you know, modern medicine, people like Dr. Peter were starting to see more and more that, oh, there's a basis for the spiritual eye. There's this frontal lobe up here that's very active in higher thinking. And it's not just a random choice of right here rather than your, your lobe or something. <laughs> So um, we're going to try to, what we're going to try to do, sit up, please. <clears throat> and we're going we're gonna to try to draw the attention to, this, to the point between the eyebrows. <clears throat> and at first, we just do a couple of measured breaths. And when we inhale, I want you to inhale through your nose up and feel that that breath is coming up to the point between the eyebrows. When we exhale, feel that the breath is going right through that place as it goes out. So inhale slowly. Hold, exhale through the nose, inhale and feel that breath coming up to the point between the eyebrows, hold, exhale, one more time. Exhale. Now, <clears throat> these are not measured breath. Just breathe normally, but the same way. Try to breathe from the spiritual eye. Inhalation, bringing air into the spiritual eye. Exhalation, the, the going out through the spiritual eye. 
Let's do about three or three or four breaths that way. Now, if you're doing this at home, you would just keep doing that till you develop a sense of some kind of energy at that point between the eyebrows. For now, if you can't feel it, just visualize it. If you can feel it, switch your attention from the breath to that presence at the energy at the point between the eyebrows. Just try to hold your mind there. And expand that awareness. Expand it, let it, let it expand to fill your mind all through your body and especially your heart. And mentally affirm inwardly, I am that inner presence. I am that vibration of peace and light. And I choose to live in conscious attunement with that presence in everything that I do. Om peace. Amen. Rejoice to sing your praise.